0: Hi everyone, welcome once again to the podcast for Cultural Reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. It's the podcast for culture makers, and we are all culture makers, we are all cultural participants. Here we want to help you think about culture in a way that honors God, in a way that takes every thought captive to King Jesus. I'm Ryan Aris, this is episode 10 of season 2 of the podcast for Cultural Reformation, first and the Original accept no substitutes. We're focusing this season on cultural pressure points. Where is the ground shifting under our feet, and what does the timeless, authoritative Word of God call normal? Today we have the second half of our conversation with Andrew Sandlin and Joe Boot about Tim Keller's recent New York Times op-ed where he asserts that Christians don't fit into either of the two major political parties. We talk about justice, we talk about Jesus, uh, the victory of the crucifixion, the power of the resurrected Lord... And what that means for how Christians should live as we try to imitate Jesus. We're also going to find out which political party Jesus would join. Stay tuned. So, yeah, Andrew, we we spoke last time just a few weeks ago. Um, you mentioned uh, you mentioned writing as a cultural activity, as a of a cultural battleground. And as you guys are talking here, I'm just. Uh, I was looking at one of, the, uh, one of the closing lines of Keller's statement, and I highlighted it here because it stuck out, not, not for its profundity necessarily, but for its, for its malleability, um, where he says, if we are only offensive or only attractive to the world, and not both, we can be sure we are failing to live as we ought. And, I mean, first of all, living as we ought, um, should mean living faithfully to uh, to God and his word but uh the this uh this act of writing and he he's done it uh, he's done it throughout this article he's uh, he's written it in in such a way that he's he'll he'll allow the reader to use his words to to fit the reader's own paradigm so it's like we're Yeah now
1: I want to guess that, oh I'm i interrupt you there uh, Ryan
0: I'm just going to say like what is uh, are, are, how are we how are we offensive to the world? How are we attractive to the world? Like he, he doesn't uh, he doesn't spell that out. What are we uh, no, What are we right. for? And or I, that's why I want to
1: go back to something that was said earlier. So most of you know, um, listeners would know, even the Canadian listeners, that the New York Times is the 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 principal uh, and uh, leading daily uh, newspaper in the United States. I mean, right up there with the Washington Post. Those those two. Um, it is uh, palpably palpably leftist, uh, with a heavy dose of cultural Marxism. It's not really possible, I believe, for Tim Keller to even get published in a, a newspaper like that mm. without writing in that sort of non-confrontational, synthetic, uh, soft soap way. Um, he, the, the article there, he would be considered, uh, a, quote, among the, the safe conservative, you know, the safe conservative to write in the New York Times. Um, this is something I'd like all of our listeners to think about. Go go to the web, uh, find that article, read it. Then I would like you to take that article and try to fit it within the Old Testament prophetic paradigm. I mean, is this the way that Isaiah spoke? Is it the way I, Elijah spoke? I don't mean the specific issues, though, in some cases. I mean the entire tone and approach. Is this the way Jesus spoke? Is it the way Paul spoke? I mean, we're talking broadly to the culture, and that's what he's doing in the New York Times. He's not speaking to the church. He's speaking to the culture. Mm-hmm. I would say there's a radical discontinuity there. So it's not just that the content, to me, fails. The entire approach, which is not loving, as Schaefer says, loving confrontation, that really fails. And it's because we're lacking in that element, I think, that the church itself is, is failing in its prophetic duty.
2: In fact, there's another interesting uh, 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 closing statement that he makes, Andrew, which which leapt out to me, um, where he's talking about the gospel giving us the resources to love people who reject our beliefs and us personally, which is, of course, true. Um, And then he says, Christians should think of how God rescued them. He did it not by taking power, but by coming to earth, losing glory and power, serving and dying on a cross. How did Jesus save? Not with a sword, but with nails in his hands. Now, I think that was the conclusion of the article. And, um, and of course, again, on, an, on a, just an initial reading of that, if you're not alert to uh, some of the underlying themes that are present in the rest of the article, and perhaps not alert to some of the currents in theology over the last... Uh, 70 years or so, um, you may not pick up, the average reader is not necessarily going to pick up the half-truth involved in that particular um, exposition of the significance of the gospel and Jesus is coming to earth. Um, he did it not by taking power, he says, but by coming to earth, losing glory and power, serving and dying on a cross. Um, now, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I, I detect in this uh, the liberationist hermeneutic as well that, that is found throughout the social justice movement that has borrowed liberation theology, that the, 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 the cross of Christ is really about powerlessness. Uh, it's about Jesus being uh, a victim, and through a kind of martyrdom, Um, uh, and through powerlessness, uh, that's how he he loses glory and power, and that's how he saves us. Now, I'm not suggesting that that Tim Keller is uh, denying a penal uh, aspect um, to substitutionary atonement, as we evangelicals have historically understood it. But I am saying that again here, when the opportunity is there to speak to the culture about the meaning of the cross and the significance of the gospel, that the choice that he makes here of articulating the meaning of what was happening on the cross, there's no mention here of Christ as Paul tells us, um, uh, triumphing over all principality and power and putting them to open shame at the cross. There's no uh, emphasis here on the victory of the cross. Um, There's there's no uh, mention here of the the fact that the power that was granted to temporal authority, as Jesus himself says to Pilate at the crucifixion, was given to them from above. Um, And that actually it was in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. And actually, as Paul says in Philippians 2, he's giving him a name that is above every name. Now that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess in heaven and in earth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so I'm concerned that the exegesis stops there with uh, not the idea of not by taking power, but by losing glory and power. I would say that actually in the cross, even though it, it, it goes against the world's understanding of what taking power looks like, that is precisely what Jesus Christ is doing. He's staking power, all the power and authority away from Satan. He's taking all the power and authority away from sin and death. He's stripping it of all its authority, and he's taking absolute and total authority, which is why prior to the ascension, he's able to say to the disciples as he sends them out, all authority in heaven and earth belongs to me, so go and make disciples of all nations. Now, to my mind, Any uh, argument about uh, justice and and, uh, uh, social and political life that doesn't emphasize the role that Jesus Christ has as the conqueror of sin and death at the cross is at least in some measure falling short of the fullness of the gospel. Do you have any thought on that? Did you detect that same kind of liberationist uh, undertones in the article?
1: Yeah, and uh, I agree with all that, Joe, uh, very eloquently put. Uh, And I also believe that that itself is an accommodationist uh, move, uh, intentional or not. And the reason for that, I believe, is that to express a strongly authoritative gospel, uh, the lordship of Christ, is going to run flatly contrary to the modern temper of individual autonomy. Mm -hmm. Um, Essentially, though I don't think Keller would say it this way, Essentially what he's saying is so it's in this great weakness and powerlessness that we that you know we come to Jesus Christ, and it's not so much that he makes strong claims on our life, as that he offers himself to us to to rescue us. Well, he does rescue us, but in rescuing us by his atoning work on the cross, he's also asserting his lordship. That's
0: right.
1: And I would add to this, not in Joah, you were really citing there didn't mention uh, the text but Colossians two, and then I can mention yes. I mean Hebrews one and Philippians two. Uh, there's also the tendency uh, to sever the crucifixion which itself you rightly indicated is a work of victory over Satan from the resurrection yes. but the Bible doesn't do that when the Paul when Paul himself uses the term cross he doesn't mean just the crucifixion That's right. he means this entire redemptive complex now I would add something here and this is kind of delving into biblical theology but it's really important so it's important to understand that the 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 church itself launched into such spectacular victory in spite of the tragic persecution of, you know, uh, of the Jews, the unbelieving Jews, and then the Roman Empire, precisely because of the power of the resurrected Lord. And that's why we don't have Pentecost until after the resurrection. Mm -hmm. That's what we read about in Acts chapter 2. He goes to heaven, he receives his throne, and and he casts down an ancient metaphor. He throws down, as it were, gifts. And the gift, of course, the main gift is the Holy Spirit itself. Now, when you see Christians after the resurrection, well, even a little before, but particularly after the resurrection, encountering Jesus Christ, it's truly remarkable. I mean, read about him in John chapter 1. Read about how Paul encountered him on the road to Emmaus when he was converted. I mean, the the resurrected Christ in all of his blazing glory is very different from the description of Jesus Christ given by Tim Keller. But the description of that Christ, I would suggest, is Christ in his present glory. That is the Mm gospel-drenched Christ, the Lordship, uh, Christ as Lord over all things, that the New Testament everywhere assumes, and particularly after the ascension and the resurrection. But, and here's the bottom line getting back to everything, if you emphasize Christ in that mode of existence, his present mode of existence, that runs flatly contrary. Yes. To modern culture, which is all about human autonomy.
2: Yeah.
1: And I think that's why, and I'm, again, I'm not questioning his motive, but the sort of powerless Christ, the liberationist Christ that he's arguing is quite compatible with the culture. That's right. mm-hmm. It's very compatible with today's culture, whereas the Christ I think that Paul and John uh, and Peter uh, depict in the New Testament is is quite different from Christ as depicted by a uh, Tim Keller at the end of that article.
2: Well, some of the sort of religious figures that are revered in Western culture today, as you know, would be people like the Dalai Lama um, and Mahatma Gandhi. Um, these are the people that the, the Hollywood acolytes would, uh, especially, um, uh, would see as sort of uh, paradigms of, um, of, of religious virtue. Um, but, of course, Christ cannot be made to... Uh, look in any way, shape or form like the, the philosophy represented by the Dalai Lama. And so I think there is this sort of, in, 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 and I, I agree with what you've said, and I think there's a, beyond the liberationist side within theology, we have this, I think this postmodern critique of power going on here that's, that seems to have impacted um, uh, Keller's thinking. Um, where power in and of itself, it, um, you know, you're always looking culturally, you're always looking politically for who stands to gain, um, where the truth is defined by power, and therefore in, in culture, it's the powerful that win out, and therefore we've got to be suspicious of power. Uh, we have to, to some degree, reject power. And if this is the way that God interacts with us through Jesus Christ, through powerlessness, uh, in theological terms, um, then this is how Christians must engage culturally and politically. There must be no attempt to um, uh, take hold of cultural or political power because power has been demonized by... um, uh, I mean, it's self-contradictory, of course, but power has been demonized by the postmodern critique.
1: Yeah, I Uh, mean, Foucault wrote about that again and again. Joe, that's an excellent point you're making, and I, but I don't, I, 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 that's totally correct. I want to make this point, though. I think you'll agree entirely with this. So when, when, we, when we strip Christ of his power, power doesn't go away. Even in his thesis, what happens, oh, that is in uh, Keller's thesis, eventually the state gets power. Yes. So power is an inescapable concept. Yeah. When we strip power away from Jesus Christ, we don't get rid of power. We vest somebody else or some other institution with power. That's what's really frightening about this.
2: Yes, because the issue, of course, biblically is not power itself. I mean, God is almighty, and Christ has all authority and power. So power is not demonic, but it's the misdirection of power that's at issue. And, of course, whether it's in uh, um, uh, leftist liberationist thought or in the postmodern critique, The irony is that the people who often seem more anxious to grab power and silence everybody else, uh, not even let them speak, are increasingly the people on this, the very left side, as uh, would be politically defined today, of the political spectrum. Um, And uh, the fact that this is not picked up on, and and I think a misleading... I simply think that here we're dealing with what what is... uh, Again, as you've said, culturally acceptable, but also a misleading way of positioning what is happening at the cross, what is actually happening uh, in the gospel, um, that, uh, that is telling um, a, a half-truth at best um, about, about what is taking place when Christ uh, surrenders himself to death on a cross. I mean, after all, Jesus said, uh, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. Now, that's an act of power. Um, He says, I have the power to lay it down. And as you said, I love that, Andrew, when you said that the redemptive historical complex there of cross and resurrection, he says, and I have power to take it up again. So we cannot deal with the power to lay it down without also addressing the power to take it up again and then Christ's session to the seat of power at the right hand of God. Yeah,
1: that's right. Um, all of that is correct, and and that's why. And and so now let's step back for a minute. This this is why we any truncated aspect of of the gospel, if if we can't stop it, leads to very dangerous consequences. This is why we need a holistic approach to the gospel and the faith. Because what happens if you seize on one aspect of it, and well, eventually you'll do like Keller has done. Not only will you um, not understand understand it, I mean, stress one thing, you won't even understand that thing as it really is. I mean, the cross itself is victory. It's not powerlessness. So uh, that that is a fundamental problem among evangelicals, and uh, I think he's just manifesting that problem. I'm glad that one thing the Institute is doing, and CCL and others, is to stress a fully-orbed faith. If you don't have that, then it's not just theoretical. There are specific, dangerous consequences to this truncated faith.
2: And I think that's an appropriate point to mention—that um, uh, you know our goal in this podcast, and and I know that's true for CCL, it's certainly true for Ezra Institute here, is that uh, we we're very reluctant to to name names or to do uh, podcasts dealing with particular evangelical individuals. Um, This is not something we take delight in doing, but we've reached the point where we think with some of the leading evangelicals in our time who are influencing um, multitudes of young evangelicals, we can't give them a constant free pass to, uh, without being challenged, to advance these ideas um, that we don't think are scripturally rooted or found in the Bible um, uh, to a, to, a, to a generation, Andrew, that um, is actually looking for, I mean, in that sense, it's part of the failure of modern evangelicalism that the reason young evangelicals today are casting about for something to give them a handle on how to approach culture, how to approach social and political life, um, ha- how to approach their civic responsibilities, um, is because we as evangelicals have. Uh, uh, because of what some missiologists call the great reversal. Um, we, have, we have not actually developed a robust cultural theology and philosophy for young evangelicals. We've not put it out there on the whole. I'm speaking in general terms now, outside of certain people like Schaefer and others who tried to really address this problem. Um, we've not uh, given, because of pietism that you defined earlier, we've not given the tools to the younger generation of believers, to be armed with a biblical vision of those things. And that makes them vulnerable, very vulnerable, when the same Christian lexicon is used but with different meanings, to think that, well, these, these must be all biblically justified, scripturally rooted ideas and approaches to cultural, social and political life. So we can't, in that sense, blame the younger evangelicals for falling for a lot of this. And that's why it very much with heavy hearts that we would have to do a podcast like this to highlight your article responding. Let's hi, let's make sure we emphasize that too. responding to Tim Keller's uh, op ed in The New York Times. Um, that we can we can no longer just say well because it's one of the prominent leading evangelicals of the boomer generation we can't say anything Um, but actually we have to say something now we can't continue to give um, uh, evangelical leaders a free pass if they're not being faithful
1: that's right Um, and of course there's wide biblical warrant for that I mean let's think um, of, you're right. This is not an anti Tim Keller podcast at all. He just happens to be one uh, of a, a number of prominent evangelicals who are uh, articulating a viewpoint that we believe is not a biblical viewpoint. So it's not Keller as a person at all we're opposed to. I'm, he's a very gracious, warm uh, Christian man. It's a particular viewpoint, a dangerous viewpoint yes. uh, that we're talking about. Um, I think one of the real issues today, and I was thinking about writing on this, Joe, as you you spoke, and I've got a title in my mind, Contracted Christianity Gets Its Comeuppance. And I think what we're seeing here is this sort of evangelical pietism uh, that we described earlier, and I won't go back and describe it now. But essentially what's happened is the children, whether, you know, actual physical children or uh, ministerial children, as it were, grow up and they say, I need something more, uh, I need something more robust. I mean, it's not really addressing these issues I'm confronting out in college, out in the workforce every day. Uh, and because they haven't had a strong, strongly biblical grounding in these cultural and social issues, they look around and find people, well, let's say like Tim Keller, like uh, uh, Ron Sider, like Jim Wallace, uh, and various others, and say, ah, oh, they will give me uh, a, a cultural Christianity. Well, uh, they do. <laughs> Yeah. Unfortunately, it's a greatly misguided yeah. cultural Christianity and essentially leftist.
2: And the. Well, I was going to say, and one of the upshots of that is that then uh, a Christianity that is um, applied to culture, a gospel that has cultural implications, can then be maligned by the hot Protestant fundamentalists in America saying, well, you see, this is the problem. It's social gospel. It's. Uh, Uh, And we need to we need to write against that. We need to speak against this. We've got to just stick to the gospel. And then they actually uh, add to the problem. They pour unwittingly fuel on the fire of the problem, which is continue to pietize and truncate the gospel. And rather than get a proper direction for the gospel as it's applied to culture, just try and shut the whole thing down and say, well, these aren't gospel issues.
1: That's right, Joe. And as you look back historically, um, I came out of a sort of fundamentalist background in a way I think you did also, Joe. I think, though well-meaning, the people who embraced that, though well-meaning, those who articulated that viewpoint that you just said, unwittingly laid the groundwork for this sort of leftist Christianity we have today. Because in, in attacking any application of the truth of the Word of God to social and cultural issues, they created a vacuum in the church that this cultural leftism with a Christian veneer came in to fill. Yes. And that's what we're essentially arguing against encountering when we discuss this matter about Tim Keller. It's not him as a person by any means. Uh, it's this idea. And, and to be fair, we have to not – if we're going to criticize Tim Keller, we have to do what you just did. We also have to criticize those you know, 25 to 50 – well, not only then, even today – that are contributing to the problem by saying, no, we need to just deal with sort of the narrow, satiric, and ecclesial, yes. churchly mm-hmm. issues. They are part, they're every, bit as, they're every bit as much a part of the problem as Tim Keller in their own way.
2: Yeah, we, and interestingly enough, you know, we're seeing the, and perhaps what we wouldn't have expected to see that on both sides of what we would call the political spectrum, um, or I should say, both sides of the theological spectrum. We see the same gravitation increasingly towards this humanistic, um, culturally um, uh, Marxist, or what we're calling leftist, or what Roger Scruton would call that sort of leftist, new left mm-hmm. political, li- p- political approach on both sides of the theological spectrum. So you can remain soteriologically uh, or orthodox and conservative, and yet uh, have Affirm and even promote um, a, uh, a culturally new leftist agenda.
1: That's right. And then you have, <coughs> I think, a prime example of that in the U.S. Well, I think also Canada and UK is groups that generally on soteriology and other issues are accurate, like the Gospel Coalition, uh, birthed in a, a essentially though somewhat narrow as far as it goes, a, a an accurate view of the gospel, the historical events and so on, the basics of the gospel. But precisely because it wasn't uh, given to applying the faith in the wider culture, it's been to a degree co-opted by this cultural Marxism and uh, and leftism. And yeah. I think that's true of a number of, of American groups and churches.
2: Yes, and you can't fight something with nothing. So it gets right. to the point where for those groups, they're not actually quite sure how to fight it off. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's almost as though... You, you, you sort of hear one apology coming out after another from, from these groups about this or that issue um, and apologizing for the church here and there because they're actually not sure at all how to respond to the accusations that are raised then, implicitly or explicitly, and I think there are it's only implicit accusation in, uh, in, in, in Keller's article, um, but some of the accusations, as you know, recently have become more explicit, um about uh, race relations and so forth um and because there isn't a robust cultural theology from a biblical standpoint they're not really sure how to respond that's right
1: it's a uh, if you don't have that robust approach to the faith you're constantly going to be susceptible and vulnerable to those kinds of attacks um i was thinking uh, about something years ago. I know a theologian that you appreciate that I worked uh, with for years, R.J. he made a Mm -hmm. point. Um, I don't uh, tend to remember compliments too well, but this I remembered because it kind of goes along with what we said. He said one time, he says, Andrew, what I appreciate about you is that you're not committed to, quote, pure theology. Mm -hmm. Now, he didn't mean by that that I like impure theology. (laughs) What he meant was... I'm not committed to a narrow scholastic theological approach such that, well, soteriology and ecclesiology, and if we get all these doctrines down, you know, in the church, everything will be fine. Uh, He came out of this broader tradition, the reformational tradition of Kuyper and Dewey and and then uh, on later uh, Schaefer and, you know, today Nancy Nancy Piercey, people like that. that. Yeah, 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 exactly. So you, you have this broader tradition that sees that all of, and runner, of all people, runner, uh, just reading about him last night, how he he went to study under Van Til theologically, but then he quickly learned the battle is not – and this is a key, Joe, that people need to understand. Particularly today, we're not in the middle of the liberal fundamentalist controversy of 120 years ago. No. Uh, there was a cultural battle then, but today the real battle is not over theology but a Christian approach to uh, to life, Christian philosophy and Christian culture. Now, you have to have a sound theology behind it, but the point is getting your theology correct will not solve these problems we're talking about. No. We have to understand a Christian worldview and a Christian philosophy and address the Bible to this whole range of issues. That has been an abject failure of the conservative wing of the church, uh, particularly the Protestant church evangelicals, and that's why we're seeing much of what we're seeing today.
2: Yes, I think that, I think that diagnosis is, is, uh, is absolutely right. We're on the same page.
0: No, right on. Uh, so, and Andrew, just to actually, both you guys, just to uh, to try, try and land this plane a little bit uh, with great appreciation for everything that you've said here. Um, to get back to the question, and it uh, it'll sound like a, a silly or a facetious question, but it, like I hope you hear the uh, the sincerity behind it. Um, to get back to uh, this question of political parties. Um, I guess a two part question um, first of all like, are are explicitly Christian political parties a good idea, and uh, secondly, uh, what party would jesus join
2: <laughs> well so i
1: 'll answer that by saying, uh, in the present uh, circumstance, I think because the United States is no longer um, Influenced largely by Christianity. I can't speak for Canada, of course, so I suspect it's quite, quite similar. Um, I think the possibility of an explicitly Christian party is not realistic right now. Uh, But there is, of the two parties, I pointed this out in the article, in the U.S., despite all of its weaknesses, compromises, and sins, the Republican Party actually is much closer biblical truth and i think i said this and i hope that maybe some folks can read my response i think it's called what's i think my article is called is god a republican or a democrat um it's particularly on the social issues i mean in its platform the republican party is pro-life it is pro-family it is pro-free markets uh it is uh pro the rule of law now is it perfect no are there hypocrites there yes uh, does it make mistakes? Of course. Is there, given all of those, nonetheless, of the two, basically on social issues, the Republican Party's right. So my view is that Christians should work within a party as a vehicle to accomplish distinctively Christian goals. Uh, would Jesus be a member of, member of a political party? Well, they didn't have political parties back then. I don't necessarily think he would. He, he might have better things to do. But <laughs> as his followers, one aspect is to uh, applying the faith in culture means applying it in politics. Politics is neither unimportant nor all important, but it is important. Uh, so applying the faith in politics means using the vehicles necessary that are available to extend the kingdom of God appropriate to that God's moral law. It means voting in a distinctively Christian way. Uh, it means uh, pressing for issues that are distinctively Christian issues, whether you use specific uh, that specific language or not. So my view is, um, but people say, are you partisan? Well, yes and no. Uh, Christ stands above and judges all parties, but that means that they can't be used as vehicles for good, distinctly Christian purposes. Yes.
2: Yeah, I think that's... Uh... I think that's right, and I I would just add, Ryan, that um, if we're asking something as as sort of um, perhaps banal um, as, you know, is Jesus on the left or the right? Yeah. um, Then I'm I'm sure Andrew would agree with this. He can correct me if if I misrepresent him, but, uh, you know, the, the whole notion of the left and the right is derived from, and this is something Evan Runner uh, didn't tire of highlighting, is something derived from the French Revolution. Yeah. Um, and uh, we can't, as Christians, define ourselves in terms of contemporary um, models of, of, of left, simplistically as left and right. Um, because, you know, we would look at certain... Um, uh, and conservative values, for example. As much as I appreciate and thankful for Edmund Burke in Britain, yeah. um, uh, but we would recognise there that there were certain um, aristocratic uh, elements mm-hmm. and certain um, uh, feudal el- feudal elements uh, uh, that uh, we would um, we would not support as believers. For that we would say we don't we can't see how this uh, can be derived from scripture. Um, so, we, so we, we must avoid simplistic identifications um, where we would say, well, you know, Jesus and Christians uh, must be uh, part of, as, as Andrew has said, this party um, uh, because um, uh, that's what Christianity is. And so, of course, we would agree with Keller that you can't identify the gospel simplicity with a political party. Yeah, of course. But the pragmatic uh, and the prudential counsel that Andrew has offered there, which I think is quite right. And although he would lament the condition of America, many of us in Canada would look at uh, America today. (laughs) And I know Christians both in Canada and in the UK who have got one bag half packed for the United States, um, as certain um, political freedoms are increasingly removed and taken away or certain persecutions and uh, marginalization continues apace in, in the UK for example I know a number of ministers who've said to me I'm, I'm seriously considering emigration to the United States because for the most part um, because of um, the, the, the strength comparative strength yeah. perhaps is the best way to put it of the Christian voice in American politics um, and of uh, what you might call a more traditional conservative Christian set of values um, uh, it's it's easier uh, to identify some distinct some distinctly Christian themes, um, for example, in, in, the, in the issue that Keller is addressing there with the Republicans and Democrats. And Andrew has said within the Republican platform, um, that one would have to say uh, are that you Keller's non-question or uh, um, problem a solution, looking for a problem of, you know, the notion that we would have to sign up to everything that all the Republican senators stand for is a nonsense. Right. But right. clearly, the, a Christian who actually believes the word of God to be the truth would, would, would need to line up uh, just from on a, on a simply, I think, on a factual, demonstrably factual basis of the platforms of those two parties would have a far better chance of inculcating biblical values and biblical truth and holding those up and advancing them within on the republican side than within a party um, that is increasingly um, in america controlled by a radical left Right. Um, yeah
1: yeah joe yeah that's right joe, w- one way that i like to put it that i think encapsulate this when i go into the voting booth I'm thinking whether an issue or a particular candidate. I say, so which one is going to stand for life? Which one's going to stand strongly for the biblical family? Which one's going to stand for individual freedom, free markets, religious freedom, and so on? Mm -hmm. I'll mark that one. Well, when I'm done, guess what? R is behind each of those names. But the R for Republican, that's incidental. That's just incidental. If it were called the Democratic Party, I would vote the Democratic Party. So the important thing is voting in accordance with and supporting what is a cor- uh, in, in line with the word of God. It just so happens that ha- in our situation in the U.S., principally with the Republican Party. But the important thing is not the party. The important thing is God's truth.
2: Yeah, well, a good example would be the Reagan Democrats uh, um, That's right. uh, back in the 80s. I mean, so this isn't about, uh, as you say, Democrat and Republican. It's who, who is lining up behind principles that are um, uh, more scriptural. I think if we look in the, the issue of political parties themselves, I think that... Uh, Obviously, Jesus, as the Lord of Lords and King of Kings, needs no membership in any party. Yeah. Um, he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. Um, but for us as, as followers of Christ, as those who take his word seriously, we need to be uh, engaged politically. We need to have an opinion. We need to form opinion on what does the word of God have? What are the implications of the word of God for political life? And I think there are some wonderful opportunities right now in some of the Western countries. Britain is one good example. And I think that there are opportunities opening up here in Canada increasingly for Christians to launch distinctively Christian political parties. That that could find that they command much more than, as Andrew rightly pointed out, the sort of handful of votes that they have traditionally garnered. I think a very good example in Britain of a, of, a, of a party outside of the three-party system of Conservative, Labour, and, um, and Liberal Democrat yeah. um, is the, was UKIP, who basically um, a party was created to campaign on one core issue, yeah. and that was to bring Britain out of the European Union. And whatever people's opinions on that, we won't go into that now, that's another podcast I would have thought, um, but the, that party was created for that purpose. They were laughed at. They were thought that they, they were told that this was ridiculous, that this was total nonsense. That how could that uh, there was no way of bringing Britain out of the European Union. That this was a fool's errand. And yet they commanded a huge percentage of the vote, um, a considerable percentage of the vote anyway, uh, in the um, the last election. Um, and as anybody paying attention to politics knows. Um, Britain uh, has, by popular referendum, is being brought out of the European Union because of their efforts. Now that shows you what a small group of people committed to a particular political view um, and uh, championing that view and making good arguments can have on the entire life of a nation. And I think actually as believers, and I, I agree with Andrew that really th- there is, there's not quite the same need in the United States yet. But I think in countries like Britain, uh, and increasingly Canada, um, there is uh, a need for and actually an opportunity for um, Christians to organize politically on a more distinctively Christian platform. Um, Some would say that in Britain today, the, 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 the the Conservative Party is very divided and that true conservatism no longer exists except in a, in, in a, number, in a handful of individuals uh, within British politics, and that conservatism has betrayed its base. I mean, after all, um, so-called gay marriage um, was uh, championed and brought in by a conservative government. That's right. right. So I think that there is opportunity in some Western countries today for Christians to organize politically, and I think have a distinctly Christian platform. I think that there is still a great opportunity for people in America to do that through the organ of the Republican Party.
0: Yeah, do you agree yeah,
1: with that, yeah, Andrew? I agree with all that. Uh, yeah, yeah, I do. I think it's a different political situation. I th- I think the difference, in, I, here's a good way to put it. I mean, you think about the Conservative Party, uh, the, the old Tories in England, and then the Republicans, there is quite a difference. I mean, you have... Uh, I mean, uh, everybody from uh, uh, Ted Cruz to Marco Rubio uh, as uh, senators are vice president, devoutly Christian man. So I mean, you do have a very strong Christian presence now you also have you know uh, leftists and moderates like Susan Collins and Murkowski and so on so it 's a mixed bag. Yeah. but I would say comparatively, there are more devout Christians who believe in applying the faith in politics in the Republican Party. Than you do have in the Conservative Party in the UK.
2: That 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 is for certain. That's for certain. Yeah. Well,
0: Andrew, Joe, thanks uh, thanks so much for um, for being here with us today. This has been a really valuable and uh, great conversation.
1: Now, thanks, Ryan. You're a great interviewer. You need to take the show on the road.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, you, you guys make it easy. I, I so I sit here. I. I kind of feel like uh, like a bit of a blind watchmaker sometimes. I'll just uh, I'll just wind you guys up and set you loose.
1: <laughs> well, you you do a good job winding. So uh, yeah, well, it's it. It.
2: Yeah. it's a good discussion, Andrew, and uh, we we very appreciative of uh, of the Center for Cultural Leadership. Our, our, our listeners should be aware of your organization there in California and um, of your, your timely articles. We, we, we appreciate your scholarship and, uh, and your partnership with the Ezra Institute here. And um, keep doing what you're doing.
1: Well, likewise, and we're sort of joined at the hip. I pr- appreciate Ezra and all that God's doing there. And I'm sure it's God's good providence he's brought us together. So I pray and live in great expectation for the future. And I believe in the expanding work of the kingdom of God. Despite great satanic attack, we're going to win. And God is going to use his people to do it, as he always has. So I'm glad to be joined to you, Joe, and to you, Ryan, and all of you up there. Thank you, Andrew.
0: We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast for Cultural Reformation. Please take a moment to like, subscribe, share, rate the podcast on your favorite listening platform. For more Ezra Institute resources, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca.